everybody. Welcome to another yeah. episode of DFV. I am Black Cinephile. I am Brad. There's that guy Brad in his uh you know one room apartment that he's uh My- still sprucing up. I got a window now though. That's pretty he's neat. A, he's got a window. You know, he, <laughs> things are looking up for him. Things are looking up. I found an escape route. Found <laughs> an escape route. That's hilarious. I can get out of the room eventually. <laughs> what you got planned for the fourth, man? Um, just barbecue with the family. Nothing uh, too extreme. Fourth uh, of July is kind of just that. That's all it is. Barbecue. Uh, I don't hear anybody ever have like extravagant plans. That works. Well, and you don't see. Wait, wait, ho! Oh, you, you, you're not used to seeing fireworks on the fourth. Not since I've become an adult. <laughs> I remember as a kid <laughs> going to the park and everything like that. But ever since I turned this magical number of thirteen, um, fireworks are kind of just one of those things that you happen to hear on the fourth of July. You don't go to see them. Oh, uh, man, listen, man. Uh, I, some adults really hate it, man, because. I know there will be there was a day after the fourth where um, I think my mom, I think she was taking me to school or so, something was going on. And um, all you heard was a big pop early in the morning. My mom looked around. She had the most aggravated look on her face like, damn, kids. <laughs> <laughs> like the fourth is over. <laughs> See, I've Enough. been able to hear fireworks the last couple of days. Uh, basically, as soon as it gets dark over here, people are lighting up fireworks. Uh, I have no idea what direction they're in. I haven't been able to see them. I've even gone outside to see if I could see where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Nope, I can hear them, though. <laughs> Isn't that the worst? When you I, just hear a bunch of pops, pop, pops, and you don't know where right. they're coming from? Yeah. At the very least, I know that I'm north enough from Detroit that it's not, you know, fireworks or gunfire. <laughs> hey, that, man. Don't need to play that game. Hey, some nights you don't know the difference. You're like, okay, I did that sounded like a, a nice firework or uh, someone's going to need an ambulance. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, being in Detroit for, uh, what was it, New Year's Eve one time. And it was like, mm, pretty sure some of those are definitely not fireworks. <laughs> oh, man. Downtown Detroit during fireworks time. <laughs> it's nice at first, but the minute you start hearing something that don't sound like a firework pop, okay, time to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit. That was the best and worst thing about Detroit fireworks. Like there were some pops that there were most pops that was like, oh, okay, that's that's a firework. And some pops you were like, all right, yeah, party's <laughs> okay. over. That that one was questionable. Oh, two and quicks to sit. Yeah, that's that's not fireworks anymore. We we got to move. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I'm going to see Minions tomorrow. Oh, you're gonna see or um, is it Minions or is it a Despicable Me? Minions: The Rise of Gru. Minions. So oh, okay, it's a, it's a Minions film. Ah, uh, I, I never seen any of them before. My wife likes them, so she's we're, we're going with uh, her and some friends. I will say the Despicable Me movies are actually pretty good. If you've never seen them, I, I I'm curious if you'd enjoy them as well. Now, is it good because of Steve Carell's Gru, or is it good because of the Minions and Gru and everything else? Uh, so in the Despicable Me movies, it's a heavy focus on Gru. Mm-hmm. So the minions are kind of just these background characters that pop in, have a joke, and then they're off screen for you know a good series of time. They only come in periodically throughout the movie. Okay. Uh, with the minions movie, 
I didn't enjoy that one. That one was just complete, you know, it, it got annoying seeing them on screen that long. It's like if you uh, gave uh, Jar Jar Binks his own movie. Right. You know, but even then in the first Star Wars movie, he still had a little bit too much screen time. Even when he showed up in the one movie and he like slotted the camera. Oh, I think that was Attack of the Clones where he literally has that one moment where he just looks directly at the camera and smiles and nods. But y'all thought I was gone, huh? Yeah, it it like zooms out on that scene and then he's not in the rest of the movie. And I think that's toward the beginning, too. Right, right. Uh, I don't know, man. It might be good. We'll see. We'll see. Just I, I'm curious how it is. Um, we should do a Despicable Me episode at some point. One of the movies. Because they are actually pretty good. Right. Despicable Me versus Despicable Me 2? No, I mean like Despicable Me versus some other kind of like DreamWorks picture or something like that. Maybe. Maybe. We could try that out. Maybe Megamind because they both deal with villains, right? Yeah. That's another one I ain't never saw. I heard that one's good. Um, all right, yeah, we could we could we could try it out, uh, dude. We got a special one today, man. We got a special one today that when I set it up, only one of these movies I had seen before, but the other one I hadn't. It 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 just it just fits so well. We today we got L.A. Wasteland. That's the theme for today, mm-hmm. and uh, we have two films uh, set in the city of Angels, uh, where things aren't really that angelic. Uh, we got. I I mean, that's putting it very lightly for these two movies. Putting it very lightly. Uh, we got to live and die in L.A. uh, William Freakin, uh, William Freakin's movie versus uh David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Yeah, man, these movies uh, yeah, we this this is intense. We 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 uh, I'm ready to just get into it. Oh yeah. you, You know what, man? I know we usually don't do this. Let's just. Let's just break them off a little bit of chronological order. What do you think? Uh, that would put To Live and Die in L.A. first? It would, because that's from 1985. Um, Yeah, I think I'm fine with that. We can do that. Okay. All right. Uh, you want to take this over? Um, I, I can take this one over, because I have a feeling you really want to take um, one drive. See, you know me so well. You know me so well. So the story of uh, To Live and Die in L.A. basically follows the chase between uh, the police and the FBI against a group of people that are printing their own money and kind of giving it out to different gangs and kind of uh, mafia around the L.A. area. So this they're basically trying to find out who's creating this money, how they're doing it, where they're doing it, and how it's getting as spread out as it is between these different groups. Because that means that there's somebody powerful behind it that could cause a lot of commotion and has mm-hmm. a lot of ties to the underworld of L.A., Meanwhile, we have the people that are printing money, and we kind of see that they are not as in control of the situation as the FBI, FBI appears to think they are, as they are having trouble even getting deals going with their money. Uh, places or some of the gangs that they're working with are kind of just going, well, why don't you just print us more? You can print infinite. Just keep giving us money. And their some of their men are even getting caught, you know, by the police and by other groups that are trying to take them down to steal 
all their counterfeit money. So mm-hmm. that is the breakdown of this movie. And I, I got to say, this movie keeps tension high, and I Ooh. absolutely love it. This was my, okay, was this your first time too? This is my first time seeing this one. Man, let me tell you something, man. For an 80s film, you, this, 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 this is terrifically paced. Oh, yeah. Like, terrifically paced, man. And um, the thing I love about this movie, and I'll put it on the same level, like, as, you know, Michael Mann's Heat, like, uh, it's a straightforward cop film. Like, it's just, it's no, it's no bones, no, there is a little bit of complexity to the twists and turns, but it's just straightforward. This is balls to the wall action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're either following the people that are performing the illegal activities or you're following the FBI. There's no outside third party story that gets intertwined. It's you're always following somebody from one of those groups. And whether you're following them doing it legally uh, when it comes to FBI or illegally or if you see like the money printing group in control or completely not in control. Uh, I love seeing kind of the dynamic between them as they keep going. The FBI is getting close on us. They they can pop up at any time. And then you go to the FBI and they're like, why can't we make a move? We can't seem to find them at all. And then it goes back, right. you know, these people must be super smart that we can't find them. And it goes back to the money printers going, I don't know, man. One of our guys just get caught at the airport. and <laughs> The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Right. It, 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 it's perfect. I, I love it. I got to say, man, that beginning was a little peculiar to me, like kind of like the prologue where we see um, we see Richard Chance and uh, they're basically they're guarding President Reagan because he's yeah. the president. And like there's this guy who's on the roof of the hotel and he's like, you know, um, he, he, you tell he's a he's a suicidal um, assassin. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, you know, he's about to blow himself up and, you know, his partner, his old partner grabs the guy, throws him off the building, and he just explodes. And then there's just like this one static shot of like the L.A. skyline cut to. And then it starts cutting to the person printing the fake or the counterfeit money. No, no, it cuts to them sitting down and he says like, man, I'm getting too old for this. And then it cuts to the title sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, that was odd. But like that kind of like rapid fire shifting tones is like this whole movie mm-hmm. like it really is a roller coaster um dude william defoe he was a good looking dude when he was a young guy um man. yeah for a minute there i when he popped up on screen i was like that's willem De- that is will wait a minute it is <laughs> like my man that my man from csi william peterson you know he's always had the same kind of look yeah but you know william defoe's like that's a slick looking william defoe I could see him as Patrick Bateman looking like that. Yeah, he, uh, well, even in a lot of his older movies, he looks completely different uh, because we're so used to what he looks like now and everything like that. Because right. even watch movies from the 2000s and he still mm-hmm. looks extremely young in those movies. Um, it's just been the last like couple of years where he just kind of went, I'm not going to dye my hair anymore and I'm not really going to care. And people were like, we like this version of Willem Dafoe. And he was like, good because this is the version you're getting <laughs> i am who i am right <laughs> i still hey, love the interview that he uh i can't remember if it was an interview or some uh 
talk show kind of thing they was like yeah people keep saying that uh, i look like the part that i could play the joker really well and you know that really uh gets to you when somebody says yeah you look like a person that can play an egomaniac <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine i can't imagine that's not the most flattering thing to hear like like dude I'm, I'm, we're having coffee man yeah. now you're telling me i look like a a, a crazy person it's kind of like somebody coming up and being like, hey, I heard that CSI Miami is looking for somebody to play a burned patient. You would do great for the part. <laughs> so we're looking for someone to play a hooker, uh, yeah. you know, off of Sunset Boulevard. And you it look looks like, like your wardrobe person. already matches. You won't have to go through makeup. It's perfect. Just go over and try out. <laughs> right, right. Um, dude, I love the characters in this movie, man, because everybody, you know, William... Eric Mast- Rick Masters, William Defoe's character, is a great mm-hmm. villain. But I love how Richard Chance, him and John, John. So Richard and John, they're so opposites. John is, uh, he's by the book. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a Secret Service agent that is by the book. He has friends that are cops that are on the right side of the law. That you know they 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 have a code and they have a code of ethics and morals. Richard is like, ethics and ethics and morals go out the window when I'm trying to take the bad guy down. Mm-hmm. Like he wants Rick Masters down so bad, and I like how they clash throughout the film. Like you know, um, and John's morals, even though he's not the main protagonist of the movie, he comes into clear focus towards the end because he kind of becomes the catalyst for change. Once you know what happens in the end happens, as we'll get to it. Um, and I love that man. I thought they were the perfect. It's not a buddy comedy movie, but I thought they were the perfect uh yin and yang as, as they were the uh, perfect team. foils for each other and Absolutely. seeing like how they operated you know uh how they went about the business and everything like that here's the moment where i knew i was gonna like this I, I didn't know what i was in for but i knew i was along for the ride the moment where um richard's uh mentor his old buddy his old partner he shows up to the scene early uh to where they're they're uh they're about to do the um the sting right or they're about to uh, uh take rick down or somebody that works on yeah. Rick's side and he you know he goes in the trash he sees the you know the crump uh the, the torn up counterfeit bills and he just gets shot and then you know uh rick masters william defoe shows up he goes he goes masters he goes buddy you showed up at the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> boom and i was like whoa oh this is intense and you know the 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 ball just starts rolling and that's really early in the movie too like that's when because that's right after you see the printing press and you see him like throw the bag into the trash can you're like oh my god okay so that must be like how they drop off the money and then you see the cop come in and try and retrieve it and it's just not there i love how they constantly play with like the people with the briefcases and mm-hmm. having the money and everything like one of the scenes kind of later in the movie where you know they have the i think it's the two cops that are or was it the cops or were they just a rival gang i think it was a rival gang that like was trying to get the money from them no those were cops were they cops yeah they were cops because okay. it was revealed later on that the guy was an undercover agent oh, okay yeah that's what so, makes that go ahead yeah but you know, when they got the briefcase and stuff and he's like banging it up against like a concrete kind of pillar to try and get it open, then it flies open and it's just a phone book inside. 
Right. Yeah, I, I, I love that. <laughs> I love that too, but I, I love how ingenious it is when my man goes, uh, strip down. And then he realized it was the thing around him that had the real money. Yeah. And well, the like, counterfeit yeah. money, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, no, no. Those are real bills because they needed real bills to pay Rick Masters. Oh, were those the real bills? Yeah, those were the real bills because they needed those to as the as the um, uh, the down payment that Rick Masters wanted. Oh, that's right, the thirty thousand that they needed. Right, right. Yep. And uh, dude, that car chase, man, that was brilliant. Oh, I loved that, it. That that was brilliant, man. And I um, like I said, dude, for an '80s film, William Freakin, you know, this is him coming off of the French Connection, which is another you know critically placed cop critically praised cop movie the dude knows how to uh film car chases man mm-hmm. like he used la uh to to the end like as as much as he could use it for a great scene like that well even with them going through like the shipping dock kind of bay area and stuff mm-hmm. like that with the trucks coming in and you know this guy needs to move his goddamn truck and he's like back up <laughs> right right and i uh I love how a scene like that, he takes time to play to um, the strong character traits that these character ha- characters have. Like, there's a moment where Richard, he's driving through, and John is in the back praying or whatever he's doing, like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Oh, my God, we're not going to make it out of this. And, you know, just they're, they're, the enemies are all around. And then you cut to the beginning when Richard, you know, on a bet, you know, uh, dives off of the bridge with, with a string tied to his ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it shows how fearless he is, you know? So in a moment like that, he taps into his fearless, crazy side and manages to get out of it, you know, driving by in, going you know. on to oncoming traffic on an on-ramp to the highway. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I love how the film, even in, in, in its moment of insanity takes a moment to go, okay, you know how crazy this character is mm-hmm. now watch him do something crazier. Right. Can you, can you imagine driving on the oncoming traffic in LA? that could you imagine just being on any highway and just seeing a car coming at you <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah. i also love how when the car chase ends they're in like that alleyway and you just have the three people in the background like dancing walking by with the boom box and everything like that as these people are like shit i can't believe we survived that you're insane and you just have these three people in the background just grooving <laughs> yeah i uh <laughs> Yeah, that's such, that's such an 80s thing, man. <laughs> Dude, I love the reveal like that we, we just we just touched on it and uh and talked about it, but I love the reveal in the um kind of like the Secret Service conference room where they're like, "Okay, announcement. Um we have a undercover uh agent of ours that was um abducted and killed. And uh you know, we're looking for two people who have uh black and brown hair. <laughs> you just see William Pierce's character you know, like if you look, you look at that guy with the meme with the uh, the vein coming out of his head. Yeah, <laughs> the sweating just, thing. Yeah, right. He's just sitting there looking all nervous, and I'm like, please show a scene of them looking at each other nervously. But they didn't show that. But um, <laughs> you just see John sitting there, just devastated, and Richard's like, everything's fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> We're gonna get Rick Masters. That's all that matters. Yeah. It's, don't worry. We're gonna win in the end. I swear. We're gonna win in the end. Oh, man. And I love how now this kind of leads to a slight criticism of mine towards the end. But I like how there's a scene where John is talking to a lawyer, a lawyer that happens to represent their 
uh, uh, pursued enemy, mm -hmm. you know, Rick Masters. And he goes, listen, man, with what you're telling me, uh, I would uh, uh, I, I would rat out your partner and you, you do one to five years, one year tops in prison and you can get away from this scot free. And, you know, John is conflicted like, man, I can't. I can't rat on a brother in arms. Like I, I, what we did was wrong and it goes against my code, but I, I can't be a rat. He was like, I'm telling you, man, if this comes down on you, it could be bad. Yeah. You know, they're responsible. Yeah, go ahead. That, that was before he went into prison too, wasn't it? Who went into prison? Uh, before the one guy went into the prison to, you know, where he was about to get like shanked and everything like that. No, 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 no. This was later on in the film after the, the car chase. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because he he talks with a lawyer, like like um like the good cop, the the mm -hmm. good secret service agent. He talks with a lawyer, like, what am I gonna do here? Like, we're responsible for one of our agents going down. He's like, you got to rat on your partner. Like, that's the only way you're gonna get out of this. But you're right, man. You just brought me to a brilliant point, dude. I love John Turturro in this movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> I love how I love how we know. Um, when they finally get him out of prison, um, you know, to serve as a, he, he's kind of like, um, he's a lead to Rick Masters, right? That's the reason he wants to get yeah, him out of prison. Yeah, he was one of the people that was uh, close to Rick Masters. So he happened to be caught at the airport uh, using the fake bills, which I love how they found out it was a fake bill because the agent just went up. I just need to see the money that uh, that man just used. And he just takes an eraser right. to it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's a funny scene, dude. When they get in the bathroom. Yeah. And uh, it, it's him pointing a gun at uh, John Turturro. Uh, a black police officer comes in. He goes, he goes, wait, what are you doing? He pointed the gun. He's like, I'm a secret service agent. One guy comes behind the black guy. Then there's oh, yeah. another guy. <laughs> Then there's another guy behind him saying, I, I just wanted to use the John. Yeah, I was just here to use the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, because doesn't right. somebody turn their gun on him, too? And he's just like, I I, I just want to use the bathroom. I didn't. <laughs> right, right. I love that, man. But there's a scene where when John Turturro, they get him out of prison. Um, they <laughs> And he should have known this was a, a trap, dog. Uh, but it's the 80s. He, he tells William Peterson, like, hey, man, my, my girl. I mean, my daughter, my daughter. She, she's, yeah, she's in the hospital. She's under this name. So they go to the hospital, they give the name and they start walking to the room. I love the excuse he gives. He goes like, uh, so what happened to your daughter? Oh, man, she's at the zoo. And uh, th th this monkey, <laughs> he just starts beating the mom. <laughs> I want to know how that sentence is going to finish. I don't think he had a finish to the sentence, and that's why he just went right for the punch. He was just like, oh, crap, I, I wasn't prepared for this. Zoo, monk, screw it. <laughs> he just plays it out so cool. He's like, yeah, man, he said this, we said it was a zoo and this monkey. <laughs> he just beats him up. Oh, man, that was funny. Yeah, I love how he escapes that way, too. And then he comes back to the police chief who's like, you literally went behind my back to let this guy out that was literally on a that you made me put on this no release kind of section. You took him out and you lost him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, how could that happen? Really? Yeah. Um, I want to speak on Richard's character, though. He's not necessarily a person I'm rooting for. Because, you know, he, he kind of has this like sexual extortion thing with this other woman where he gets oh, like yeah. tips from 
and stuff like that. And it, it comes off very shady, but it's like, you know, he's on the right side of the law because he would be much more dangerous if he was on the other side of the law. But it's like, at what point does the end justify the means? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like you, you, you want to see where this goes. He, he's a very crooked cop, but he his heart is in like the right place in a weird way. Like he mm-hmm. is trying to do things in the most lawful way. He's just getting there in a dirty fashion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I want to talk about the final showdown, man. Um, so, so what happens in the final showdown was two final showdowns. So pretty much he, uh, they, they give the money to Rick and then, um, they reveal like, uh, you're under arrest. Mm. Um, you know, they did some, some tussling then all of a sudden, you know, boom, Richard gets his face blown off. Uh, Rick Masters escapes and John shoots the, the henchman that was left behind. And there, there's that confrontation in the, in the, in the money printing center. Now here's where this film kind of makes me go. See in the script, I think they just said, screw it. We're at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a point where Rick says, you know, uh, you could have dimed on your partner, but you didn't. And I was like, wait a minute. So this whole time he knew they were cops and he still did the deal with them. Yeah. It doesn't make sense sense because his entire thing is trying to evade the FBI. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you knew that that was actually, well, wait, why were you doing all that? It starts to play this weird game of like backwards 4d chess where you're like, no, 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 you weren't, you weren't even in control a little bit. You seem to have even thought you were in even more control than you were. Yeah, because it's like, I I look at that scene and I'm like, because at one point I was like, okay, he was trying to test if they were crooked cops that he could get uh, information out of. But I'm like, even that doesn't make sense because you're trying to stay away. Like you said, he's trying to stay away from the cops. And I'm like, yeah, even if they were crooked cops at the same time, he has a hard enough time like getting gangs and people to kind of keep abiding by him as somebody that's printing money and everything. There's no way he would be able to get cops on the same payroll, especially because the cops can't use the money. They've even said in everything like that, that they couldn't use any of the money Uh, when they were asking, like, well, why can't we just get some of that counterfeit money to use as money to, you know, make the deal? And it was like, we can't do that. You know, we we have to use real bills and we can't get real bills past like 10,000. Right. And they, I think they would kind of recognize the counterfeit money, too. Like that, that really wouldn't be a smart idea. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think his I think uh, Rick's demise is so poetic because he basically dies in the warehouse of uh, counterfeit money. He, he, he mm-hmm. burns to death, but like he's on fire. I think I thought that was pretty uh, poetic uh, for him to die that way. Right. Yeah. Um. So what you think about so. Here's the thing I love about John. John starts off as a straight shooter, a do-gooder. He's like, look, man, I believe in doing good to take down bad. I don't believe in doing bad to take down bad. But by the end of this film, you just see a total 360. He's he's gone off the deep end. I think that this case breaks him because Mm -hmm. everything keeps going wrong constantly to the point that they – had a suspect they lost they lost an undercover cop they lost everything literally everything 
so mm-hmm. he has no reason to keep trying to be good at the end because the other team is just playing so dirty and is getting so far ahead of them that he has to do something to catch up. And I do like how you kind of see that his character development go a little bit as he reaches that breaking point of going, no, whatever it takes now. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't care what it is, whatever it takes, uh, to the point that he's breaking the law himself in order to try and do things. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I love how, you know, he tells Ruth, you know, she's about to get out of town because she's like, it's getting too deep for me. You know, there's, there's dead agents. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen Richard in a while. Uh, I need I need to get out of here. I like how um, he tells her like, uh, hey, you work for me now. You know, you're not going anywhere. And like I said, the way this movie starts off peculiar, it ends peculiar. Cause it just it ends with her staring at him and then you get a cut to uh Richard, you know, with his shirt off laying against the window. And then, you know, you, I think at some point he, he drives up, I, it might be a flashback. And then all of a sudden it's the end. I, I think that was a flashback. Yeah. It's a flashback. And then with the credits end, it's him again, uh, laying up by the window. And I'm like, hmm, that's the weird way to end it. What'd you feel about that? Um, kind of the same where i was just like well that's one way to end this movie uh yeah the beginning and the end are just very odd and they almost feel out of place in the movie but at the same time the movie is moving like a mile a minute throughout the Mm -hmm. entire time as well you know um but yeah that uh yeah the ending kind of with uh you know him going alluding that he knew that they were FBI agents the entire time and everything like that. And then mm-hmm. we get that. It just, it, it, it was odd. It was very odd. It, it, it I, I don't have any other words for it. It was just kind of odd. You know, I'm sure that there was some like backwards meaning to it and something like that. Um, but it went over my head. I can say that for sure. I, I just had a fun time with this movie. <laughs> you know, I, I had a fun time too. And that's the thing. I feel like the movie gives you so much of a fun, intense, sexy ride that you don't really care about faults like that. You're like, right. Yeah. You're not going, oh, that's a plot hole. You're just going, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Continue on, movie. (laughs) I I, I want more 80s action. I I want more 80s Mm -hmm. intensity. I don't care about this. Right. Yeah. Man, um, here's one thing that just, it bothered me, but I kind of just laughed it off. When your head gets blown off, you don't go, ah, <laughs> you're done. You're Are you done. sure? How often have you had your head blown off? Look, man, when, when, uh, when, uh, the, when this movie, when this movie starts, uh, Richard's old partner, the moment where William Defoe blows his head off, he, you know, he says, you're in the wrong place in the wrong time. You, <laughs> he blows his head off and you hear a, ah, I'm like, you're done, dude. You have no more consciousness to make a ah sound. That's called overacting in the afterlife. <laughs> and then it happened two more times in the movie. Like, I just thought that was hilarious. Like, you, you, you don't make sounds when your head gets blown off. And, it, and part of me was like, oh, it's an 80s movie. I'm like, nah, 
They didn't act that way in The Godfather. That's, that's no excuse. Well, you also have the 80s effects for anytime somebody's like shooting and they miss. It, it basically blows up sand like eight feet in the air for every bullet. It's like, yeah, bu- bullets are fast, but they're not shooting sand, <laughs> you know, that high in the air whenever. If the gun is pointed like this, how's the bullet going to go downwards to make the sand? Right, yeah. <laughs> that makes no sense. And then you hear the pew, pew, pew. Oh, yeah. The bullet noises. I love the bullet noises. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's. It, 80s action movie like special effects and like acting and everything like that for those kind of deaths and everything um the people that you know they start falling before the blood starts you know the blood packet goes off and stuff like that and they're like we only had one take we got to roll with it we we ruined the shirt we don't have another blue shirt so (laughs) we got to roll with this take yeah dude overall great intensity uh, great action, uh, great heroes, great villains. Mm-hmm. I, I, there is some problems uh, with the plot and some special. I, with, I would say the story is the great. weakest point of this movie. Towards the end, yeah. I say the, the finale is the 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 plot towards the end is weak, yeah. but the action and intensity in the feel is all great. Yeah, the, um, yeah. Everything else about this movie is just on peak. It's just. The script was very, I don't even want to say cliched because it was just odd. It wasn't even cliches that it was going for and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. It just didn't make much sense when you think about it. But then luckily there's like a really good action scene after every moment that doesn't make sense to make you go, oh yeah, I'm back in. (laughs) The script just goes, screw it, let's do it live. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Dude, I get us a 4.5. Oh yeah, this this is definitely like a four out of five to me. Okay, yeah, I just thought it just hit, man. Oh yeah, uh, you know when when I when I set this one up, when I suggested to set this one up with Mahalan Drive, I said, okay, both of these films put both of these films put LA in an interesting light. Let's see where this goes. And plus, I've heard great things about this movie, and I was uh I was satisfied, man. Oh, absolutely the same. Um, yeah, I. Like I said, I enjoyed this movie. The plot was just a little strange at points, but beyond that, great movie. If this had a second draft, well, honestly, I don't even think it needed a second draft. It just it, it needed a little bit more focus toward the end. Mm-hmm. I agree. I definitely agree. All right. <laughs> Ready? Oh, man. <sighs> Am I? I don't know. <laughs> I know, man. We gotta, we got. I think we gonna have a lot to cover on this one. But uh, all right, y'all. So uh, this next film we're gonna do, um, Mahalan Drive, and this is a uh, written and directed by the surreal master himself, David Lynch. Uh, I don't know how you summarize a movie like this, but well, I, I'll try my best. So, brief synopsis, very brief. Um, there's a woman who comes to Hollywood. Her name is uh, Diane. And uh, her name is Betty. I'm sorry. Her name is Betty. Yeah, you're, and, uh, you're getting it confused with the end already. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm already I'm already jumping ahead, man. But uh, this woman comes to Hollywood. Her name is Betty. And she's uh, staying in an apartment of her uh, of her aunts. Uh, she, she, she has Hollywood as like a city of dreams in her eyes. You know what I mean? She she wants to come here and see what kind of opportunities come her way. She wants to be an actress. Um, she comes across a woman uh, who uh, we find her, her her name 
we don't even know her name in the beginning. She's a woman that uh, after a car crash in the beginning gains amnesia, doesn't remember who she is. She sneaks into this apartment the day before uh, Betty comes and um, her and Betty become close friends. And she's like, she's like, you know, my name is Rita, but that's not really my name. I don't remember who I am. Mm -hmm. All we know is that there are some people that are looking for her. There's a hitman, a clumsy hitman. <laughs> Yeah. That is looking for her. Well, she doesn't even know that. She doesn't remember anything. She remembers a right. car crash, and then she kind of, like, just walked into the city and then walked into this apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we know about her. And Betty is trying to help uncover this mystery of who this woman is. We got another plot line. We're not even at the lower third yet. We got another plot <laughs> line of a, of a director played by Justin Thoreau. Who uh, is making this new film and is uh, kind of being kind of being strongholded by these mysterious, creepy Hollywood executives that say, "No, no, you're casting this actress we want in this role," and he's like, "I don't, I don't want her. I want the woman that I'm already that I'm already trying to cast." And you know, they're basically telling him, they they max out his credit cards, they uh, lock him in, they kind of stronghold him into saying, "Listen." You're going to pick this girl or else. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to talk a little bit before we get to the lower third. That's basically in a nutshell what most of this movie is about. The first two thirds. So let's start off by talking about uh, Rita and Betty's adventure. Because this movie has these plot lines that are kind of continually going back and forth between them that really don't have too much connection. There's vignettes. Right. So I think it's best if we just kind of tackle this one right away and then move from there. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got to ask you, man. I got to ask you because everybody has an interesting first time. Wait, what did you think about the, the man behind Winky scene? The man behind Winky? Are you talking about the when he's talking about his nightmare? Right, right. Um, I, I had no idea where it was going and the way that the camera was like always panned a little bit like that he was always uh, he, nobody was ever center in that scene. So I was like, right. somebody's going to show up and he's going to it's going to be this weird moment and stuff like that and that nothing happens and then it just moves on. And I was like, mm -hmm. OK, that's going to come back. It never comes back. There's no I, I don't understand that scene. <laughs> Someone did show up. There was a man behind the behind the wall. Was there? You didn't, see, you didn't see it? No. No, man. Listen, like they was in a restaurant. He was talking about the bad dream he had, right? Yeah. And then they went down and they walked down and then the man popped up behind. Oh, the wall. yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I, Is I that all that was leading to? Right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I, I was still like waiting for that to like be something. <laughs> that didn't creep you out when the man popped out? Oh, it did. It, it was kind of one of those things. But at the same time, I was like, no, that, that scene, there was, there's got to be more to that scene. <laughs> oh, wow, dude. I remember when I first saw this movie, that scene, that scene creeped me out because I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and then the dude just has a heart attack and falls down and then he just cuts away. And you're right. It never goes back to it. And I was just like, what was that? That's kind of how this was my first David Lynch movie, dude. Mm -hmm. Like this was a heck of a way to be introduced to him because I was like, this is not what I expected this to be. <laughs> this is weird, but I'm gonna stick with it and see what happens. It, it is very weird in David Lynch style too. 
Uh, this is one of those movies that like people can't agree on what it means. And when David Lynch is asked, he just goes, I made a movie. And then he just walks off. Yeah, he, 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 he never answers. He wants you to tell. He wants you to know what it, he wants you to figure out what it means for you. Right. But uh, we're we going to get into interpretations. Trust me, we, we got a lot to cover. But uh, you said you want the cover of Betty and Rita. Yeah. Let's start off with uh, Betty and Rita's adventure, which is basically you have Betty, who is trying to become a actress in L.A. And then Rita, who has no idea who she is, not anything. But in her purse, she has a bunch of uh, just random, you know, stacks of money, you know, Mm -hmm. like a couple, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at the very least, just in her purse and everything. And they start off by going to a diner, which they see one of the people that works there is named Diane. And Rita's like, Diane, Diane you know something i can't remember what the last name was uh do you remember when was it selwyn i forgot i think it was selwyn but i could be wrong yeah but they basically look up this person in the uh address book to be like maybe that's who you are you know and they call and it's not her voice and they're like you know what we should go there so they go to the house to find out that uh, her and another ma- neighbor swapped apartments. So you have this really weird interaction with this neighbor that's like, no, no, I'll join you. You know, she has some stuff of mine still. And then it cuts to, or then she has a phone call. She has to go attend that. And she said she'll be over later. They go to the apartment where they're able to get in. And they find who they assume is Diane dead on the floor, yeah. uh, decomposing. R- Riga Mortis. Yeah. 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 That's uh, chilling. Yeah. Uh, at that point, th- this movie just goes strange for their story as Rita starts wearing a blonde wig in order to, like, disguise herself. <laughs> um. <laughs> And they start uh, having a relationship with each other, and they That's go a hot to scene, dude. Yeah, That's they a hot scene, <laughs> and, they, and it, it didn't even go all the way. It was just hot, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then they go to like a two a.m. illusionist opera show thing. Club Silencio. Yeah, Club Silencio. <laughs> Dude, I love how beautiful and strange that scene is, man. It like, is weird. Like, you got this opera singer that comes out, uh, Rebecca Del Rayo. That's that's her real name. Um, and she starts singing uh, a Roy Oberson song called Crying in, in Spanish. And her voice is beautiful. Like, it's, it's a beautifully sung moment. And all of a sudden, she just collapses, and you remember it's a recording. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, it's still going even after she collapses. And it's like, oh, right. yeah, it, because everything you see is an illusion at this show. Nothing is real. Everything's an illusion. And then right. I'm trying to remember, was it uh, Betty that was like basically freaking out during the show, during the illusionist thing? Uh, yeah, my man, <laughs> my man that came out before with the wand, uh, he goes, uh, you know, it's he didn't say this, but some Harry Potter thing, ex Vesperus, and the, the, the light starts storming and she starts convulsing. Yeah. And then he stops it and then she stops convulsing. I was like, 
okay then. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just they just move forward and then um before we get into Justin Thoreau's uh plot line, you know, they go back home and uh at some point uh you know uh Rita goes into the bathroom then comes out and Betty's gone. So Rita takes this box that she's had this whole time. She has a key. She puts it in the box. No, she finds out that Betty has a key that matches the box. And then she gets the key. That's when Betty disappears and Rita kind of opens the box. uh, And then she just faints. And that's where we'll leave their story. So that's, that's their story that happens in this movie. Well, no, the camera, well, she faints because I thought the camera goes into the box, comes out and the box falls to the ground. And then we start to, reality starts to shift. Um, I'm pretty sure she faints at the very least because she screams and then you hear a thud and then we see the box drop. So I assume that she hit the floor unless we're hearing the box drop twice or something. I think we just heard the box drop. You could be right, but I think we just heard the box drop. Okay. Um. Okay, so all right. Again, before we get to the last half, uh, okay, well, more Justin. like the last thirty minutes. Oh yeah, yeah. So like the the final third of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Um, oh man, before we move on, dude, you gotta love that sound design in the beginning, like right before the car crash. You know, uh, we got uh, the Rita in in the in the first two thirds of the movie. She's in the back of the car. She's like, "Hey, we don't stop here." And you got that juxtaposed with the the fast kids on the car, and you're like, oh yeah, the people hanging out of the windows and everything. Right. And like, I love how the sign design is in that scene. Like everything, you you hear the tense, like kind of like uh, you know, like like detective noir soundtrack when they're in a limo, but outside it's just like, wee, real fast. Like I love how it, it juxtaposes that in like kind of like. It's jarring, but it's a good kind of jarring. I also like that it's like the least jump scary kind of car crash yeah. because it, it, it doesn't play with like, oh, here we got to put like a loud noise and a lot of like camera shake and stuff like that. It just has the car crash and it shows like what happened at the end with the cars being basically totaled and her walking away. There's nobody else alive there. Uh, even when the police are there later, you kind of see that it, it's a, it's a dead zone for that car crash. But it wasn't jump scary like most movies would use that as a way to like put some you know jump into the movie. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. All right. Uh, so Adam Kesher, the Hollywood big shot director. Yes. <laughs> I I love how funny this this plot line is funny. Even when it's not supposed to be like, 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 like um, these guys. So, look, (laughs) there's a short man in a chair in in a dark room and he has this this microphone up to his mouth. And like this one guy behind him, just, you know, a little post it. And he talks into the microphone to a guy that's behind a two way mirror. Mm -hmm. And he gives the guy directions and stuff. And it's just very slow and mysterious like yes we want her but but that means yes that means that (laughs) and it's like it's mysterious but it's like dude this is weird yeah uh everything about his story is very weird uh because even then the next scene with him is in the board meeting 
uh, with like the Hollywood executives and they're like, we want you to pick this girl. And when you see her, you're going to say, that's the girl. Do you understand? I don't want that girl. Do you understand? I, that's not the person I want. And then it's silent for a little bit. And then somebody comes in with like an espresso and the person like, like starts drinking it and then immediately they like, spits it out into a napkin. <laughs> he says, I, he says, I swear to you, this is the best espresso. I, I swear that we were told this is the best one. You know, there's nothing ever better and stuff like that. And then he just leaves. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't leave. He just stands up mad, and then uh, Dan Hadia's character starts screaming, ah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he just, he, he just gets intense. And you can see Justin Thoreau just sitting there like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, I just <laughs> want to make a movie. <laughs> I just want to make a movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically, so they make their presence felt. <laughs> um, dude, I love when he, I love the Billy Ray Cyrus scene, man. <laughs> oh, God. My wife walked into that scene uh, while I was watching the movie. Uh, uh, and uh, she goes, she goes, Billy Ray Cyrus, what movie are you watching? And I like how he's just sitting on the bed next to his wife. And he's like, just pretend you didn't see this. It'll work better that way. <laughs> It'll work better that way. I like how she's pissed at him for walking in on her having an affair. <laughs> like, this is his fault. Right. And then he starts... <laughs> He starts pulling. He starts pouring the paint on the jewelry. Yes, I'm like, I'm like, listen, man. If you want to get on a woman's nerves, he did the best thing. I love how he does it so nonchalantly too. Like he just stares at them, and then he goes over, opens the drawer, takes a box out, and she's like, "Wait, that's my jewelry!" And he just goes back to him, and he's just slowly walking through the house. He like opens a drawer, and he goes, shakes his head, closes it. He goes into the garage, grabs the paint, comes back into the kitchen. And uh, I, I love how um, you know, second time around after Billy Ray kicks him out, uh, the the bad guy, one of their henchmen, comes, and I love how he's just so like nonchalant. Like his main mission is to find Adam. Yeah, he's like. This Adam Kesher's house, and the wife comes out like, "He's gone. Get away from here!" And he's like, <laughs> "He said, where's Adam Kesher?" And she's like beating on him and stopping. He's like throwing her off. Now he's just calling Adam Kesher. She's basically hanging on to him while he's just going, "Adam Kesher." <laughs> right. And then Billy Ray comes out and says, "You must not have heard her." And he starts pushing him. He knocks on Billy Ray. And then he punches her. One punch, yeah. And then, well, yeah, she's like trying to strangle him, and he just bam, right over his head. Dude, this is some this is some great humor in this movie, man. And I love how when Adam is at like a motel or something, again, a, a scene that's supposed to be creepy but is hilarious at the same time. Manager comes to the door, he goes, mm-hmm. "Yeah, these um these people, they're uh you know they're uh, they they they're looking for you." They, they, I have to let you know they, they maxed out your credit cards. He's oh, like, no, it's the bank called. They said that uh, all your credit cards are maxed, but I paid you with cash. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm yeah, just, yeah. you know, they, they, they called me. They called you know? me. <laughs> and I love, how, I, love I love how towards the end, uh, he's like, he's like, he's like, how'd they know I was here? He says, um, you know, it, it's, it's my duty to let you know that these people, they, 
they they know you're here. They they know you're here. <laughs> like this is so random. And then like uh you know I think he just the guy just closed the guy he closes the door. The guy outside closes. Yeah, the, the manager door. closes the door on him after that. <laughs> it's like this movie is insane. Oh man, in the cowboy scene, dude. Yeah, you gotta go see the cowboy. I gotta go see the cowboy. <laughs> right. It, it, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. After he's on the phone, he goes to the cowboy. And the cowboy, again, something that comes off creepy, but it's funny at the same time. The dude is just like very stoic. And he's like, uh, he's like, are you really thinking? Nah, I think you're being a smart aleck. Now stop for a second. Stop being a smart aleck and think. Well, no, he asked him the question of, you know, uh, do you believe whatever? And he goes, yeah. He's like, do you really, though? But then repeat what I said. He repeats it perfectly. He's like, I think you're being a smart aleck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's like, like, do you believe a man's attitude guides his path to life is what he asked him. Yeah. And he, he basically goes like, He's like, listen, man, you see me one more time, you did good. You see me another time, you see me two times, you did bad. <laughs> I, you, you ever wonder in your head how that might go? It's like, okay, I see him one time. Hopefully I don't see him again. Hopefully I never run into the cowboy again. I love that he's really in like full on like cowboy get up. Like, you know, the, the big bell bottom jeans, you know. <laughs> The cowboy boots, the hat. He has like the studded like coat and everything. I, I would love how and this 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 would never happen, but I would love how you know how you sometimes you make deleted scenes in your head that if he met him a second time, he go, dude, I did what you said. He'd be like, oh no, I'm not here for that, man. You just we just happen to run across each other. <laughs> I'm heading to the grocery store. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would have been hilarious if that happened. Um. But yeah, overall, he decides, you know, on set that, you know, hey, this is the girl. But then there's a quick little moment between him and um, him and Betty where Betty comes to see, uh, comes to the set. And, dude, oh, man, we got to talk about that scene, that audition scene, dude. Yes. Like, that's, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes ever because the way the film sets it up is so genius. There's, like, levels to this film, dude. When she's table reading – when she's table reading with Rita, it's hilarious because Rita is just straight up just reading the lines off the script. Also, it starts with her lines being like angry and stuff like that and being like, no, you have to leave. You, th- We've gone too far. This is getting weird. You have to leave. And then it cuts to Rita and she's just standing there and then she looks down at a script and starts reading it point blank. You're like, oh, they're reading lines for the part. At first, it's like this is happening for real kind of thing. Right, dude. Like I love I love how this film kind of messes with you in some scenes because the way she's doing it in that scene, it's like, okay, she's coming off like an average actress. She's she's playing the part. And then she gets in the audition room and she just nails it, dude. Mm-hmm. Like she gives a terrific performance with the with her acting partner in the audition. And I love how, dude, I gotta say, Naomi Watts is brilliant in this film, man. Oh yeah. Like the the level she goes as an actress in this film from being this like naive, ready to take on the world, young uh, actress in training to this skilled actress in an audition that's able to pull out emotion, sexual tense emotion in audition to this very 
very heartbroken, uh, um, disturbed woman in 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 uh in the the, the, la- the yeah. last third of this movie. Like she nailed it in this movie, man. Oh yeah, she definitely. I mean, she's a great actress. It, it's yeah. not a surprise at all. Uh, but yeah, I I love the kind of see her transition between the three well technically it's two characters but one Mm -hmm. of them is not so much what it seems right right i think this was one of her first movies well no not it wasn't her first movie but it was like the movie that was like a it was a very breakthrough role for her oh i can see that yeah for sure um but yeah man so I think we so did we did we cover enough? See, this is the point where I knew first time watching this movie something was wrong. Uh, when when uh, when Betty leaves the airport, and you know she's talking to those two these these two old people that uh, I guess she rode with them on the plane over here. She was like, "Man, I was it was great meeting y'all." She's like, and they so they go, "Yeah, you know, good luck with your acting." She drives off. These people in a limo. And it's, it's starting to like the smiles are kind of forced. Mm-hmm. It, they smile over at each other. And uh, homegirl just smacks her husband's leg real hard. And then they just go. <laughs> I was like, something is very off with this movie. The, the worst part is, in the context of everything of this movie, that's still not the weirdest scene. <laughs> No, I mean, by that point, you're just settling in. Right, yeah. At that point, you're like, yeah, I, okay, this is this is going to be this is going to be a ride. <laughs> it definitely is going to be a ride. All right. Um what did you think of the whole Hitman sequence? So, are you talking about from the last third? No, 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 no. Oh, no, no. Uh earlier, the first the, the first two thirds. Um Oh, you you're talking about where he goes to get the black book and oh my god, I forgot about that scene for a minute. Uh I absolutely love that scene. That is slapstick at its finest. <laughs> I, I like how after he shoots my man <laughs> and, and he shoots old girl by accident, he comes in the room, she's like, something bit me bad. Yeah, something bit me bad. And then he just starts to try and strangle her and he's just failing right. completely. And then he comes into so the put the entire thing into perspective of just how much he messed up. Uh, I love first off that he just you know asks the guy, "Hey, is that the black book?" Yeah, that's the. <laughs> and then he's cleaning the gun, puts it up, shoots through the wall to this one lady, tries to strangle her to you know silence her and everything, and right. gets caught in the hallway by the janitor, and he's yelling at the janitor, "She's she's hurt bad. You need to come help. Call nine one one." And the janitor's just standing there. Come on, I can't do this all by myself. He's just staring. He's just staring at him, just curious, like, like what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> he's just like no emotion, just staring at him. Right, and then you know he uh, shoots the one lady, and then uh, the one person, you know, the janitor comes in and just stares at her and just looks up, and he just goes. Hey, hey and then he shoots him. <laughs> he goes, hey, man, he just shoots him. And then uh, he creates even more of a fuss because the lights go out and then they come Oh, back no, he light. shoots the vacuum, which causes an electrical short. <laughs> right. Lights go off and they come back on. Then all the, the cars start honking. Yeah. And he goes, oh. Yeah, man. the alarm's going off in the building and stuff like that. It's <laughs> yeah, I thought that was. And then he just walks great. out the window. <laughs> Right, it was great slapstick humor. 
Oh, uh, yeah. I love that scene. I, I, I completely forgot about that one. <laughs> right, right. All right. So, you ready to move on to the... Uh, depressing side of this film yeah the uh the the side of this film that starts to make things make a little bit more sense but still at the same time not really (laughs) right depending on how you look at it but yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah uh so basically um i mean so i don't know if i'm summarizing this for the audience or you and i are just talking here but uh let's so basically what did you think of this like final third here so let's start off the final third it is we have uh betty and rita come back into play this takes place after it was rita uh puts the key in the box uh it drops everything we go into the box and then Mm -hmm. we come back to uh betty uh waking up in the apartment they were at previously where it was who was it? Uh, what was her name at the end? We, who? Uh, Betty's name at the end. Uh, it was oh, Diane. 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 That's it. So she wakes up as Diane, uh, still looking like Betty, though. And we find out that uh, she is in a relationship with uh, Rita, who is named Camila. Yeah, she's now Camila, who she's in the now- dream... Yeah, Camilla, who 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 in the dream was the girl that was supposed to uh, uh, that that the the creepy exec guys wanted to be the uh, the the actress in the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we find out that she's actually an actress and that she's about to get married to uh, the one director from the previous uh, part of the movie and everything. Who mm-hmm. he's still him. I don't think his name changed, did it? It's still uh, no, Adam. He, I think he's still Adam. Yeah. Okay. So his name is still Adam in this part. Uh, but he, him and Camille are a couple and everything like that. Um, and previously Diane and Camille were a thing, Camilla. but they, Camilla were a thing, but they kind of broke up. Um, mm. yeah. And then it's kind of shown that, uh, we have, uh, who was Diane comes in and hires somebody to kill Camilla in order to take her out for, you know, basically stealing her life and everything like that. And yeah. it's the same hitman that we saw failing everything before, but he's more of a professional, but he's uh, actually a professional around. now. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, yeah. So basically we see that these roles are completely, turned around and everything like that. And we see that, you know, she's the one that put out the hit and it was her. And then it became, it, it was strange because as you're watching it, you're like, I'm, I'm not understanding everything like that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually read a couple like different people's interpretations and everything like that. Because at first I was like, okay, so this is a, at first I was thinking this was kind of like an alternate telling of the story Mm -hmm. as kind of like the box opened up like a second world where everything was a little bit different because at the same time we have uh diane has the one person come in to finish taking your stuff from the previous story 
of going, oh, I have some stuff at her house still that I got to pick up, like dishes and everything. And then we mm-hmm. see her come and do that in this part of the story. So it was like, okay, so this is kind of like an alternate telling of everything from a different perspective, maybe. And then it starts going around and it's like, okay, so that's not it. <laughs> it's, it's definitely... Um it's definitely an interpretation and like this movie does have some great interpretations on the internet. Uh, one more than others that kind of makes the most sense. Uh, but like, I love how this second half of the film, man, like it's just, it's, 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 it's like, it takes you like a couple watches to get into like what really happened, but I love how it's structured so well in a nonlinear way. Like it starts off with the blue key on the table, mm-hmm. which means Hey, it got done. And we, we don't know what that means when we're first jumping into this new reality. We're like, why is Betty now this woman named Diane? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and I love how when she's walking around the apartment, it jumps around to like different moments of their relationship, you know, to the point where uh, it's like we realize that, um, you know, Rita is now Camilla. Camilla and Diane are an item and Camilla is now breaking up with Diane. And then we go forward and I love how it all shows how cruel Camilla was to Diane. Like, you know, she's at the audition. No, no, no. She's on set. And uh, yeah. she she specifically, when, when the director is trying to show his actor how to do the love scene, how to do a kissing scene with um, Camille. Camilla, yep. um, Camilla says, oh, no, no, no. I, I want Diane to stay when he tells the set to clear. He says, okay, fine. Di- your friend Diane can stay. And she makes sure Diane looks and sees them making out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? All that conjoined with inviting her to their engagement party and not even letting her know that they're getting engaged. Like it's 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 sad. It, it is. It's it's basically we get to see that uh Diane slash Betty uh she wants to be an actress and everything like that in this alternate take it basically i think a dream sequence is the most uh kind of popular theory that people have the popular theory is that the first two thirds is is her dream sequence yes and what my man said in club silencio like listen man this is an illusion like it's her illusion of what life could have been yeah which is why it affected her so hard and everything like that and there's so many like little nuggets um they weren't things that i caught on the first viewing obviously but things that other people have pointed out that i was reading up on like the blue keys appearance and stuff like that um even the way that so at the end obviously uh she she ends up dying she kills herself as she right. sees like the ghosts of i can't remember who they were i think they were supposed to be her aunt like like her uh like her real aunt like oh, okay. that, she, that that her aunt Ruth that died that left her some money and her and maybe her uncle yeah um, I, I think that's what they were supposed to be so and like, she like saw the ghosts of them and then she kills herself and her body falls in the same way that they find uh Diane's body in the apartment in the previous part of the movie so it, there's there's a lot of kind of like parallels uh, parallels between them and everything like that um but yeah it's it's a strange kind of psychological movie it is dude it is man and i um i didn't i wasn't hit to this movie when it first dropped uh but i've I've read stories on how when this movie dropped people were like uh this was a great comeback film for lynch 
because he had did some work that was like well regarded but some kind of trash like he had did a prequel film for twin peaks that a lot of people didn't like mm-hmm. i i like it today but i could see how it may be drawing to some folks because it didn't have the same kind of quirky campy feels the show so a lot of people were turned off by it right and yeah mark, mark frost wasn't involved so i could see how people were turned off by that movie so at this point you know lynch coming through with this movie on the eve of um the 2000s uh yeah this was his comeback movie and a lot of people loved it man and even to this day is regarded as one of the best movies ever made but um yeah man i want to say dude that look that last third i've heard crazy interpretations that that is the nightmare and the first two thirds is the dream like mm-hmm. like or even like the, the the last third is a nightmare and the first two thirds is kind of like a hyper reality like that's a nightmare that maybe betty has you know i've heard it like switch to and fro but the thing is the movie is like so interchangeable and flexible that to this day people bring up new and new theories yeah i even saw one where it was like a uh I'm trying to remember what the word is, but when you're between death and actually like having died and stuff, you're purgatory. She's basically Mm -hmm. stuck in purgatory, kind of going between these two realities uh, where she is basically just hurting the people around her over her own jealousy. Yeah. And, you know, and then we have the dream sequence ones. There's a couple other theories I was reading that I was kind of like, okay, that one sounds a little bit too far out there. And some that it's like, wow, that person put a lot of thought into it. And I kind of hope that they're right because it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like I, and I like how things that show up that you, you didn't really have an explanation for kind of lead, it leads more credence to it by that final point. Like, you know, in the beginning when people are dancing, and it mm-hmm. just has like this weird, like little like effect. How you get, you see like like cutouts of people dancing in and around and all. And then that. you have like it's almost like the iPod commercials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, and, yeah. And then you got uh, you know, her face showing up glowing white out of nowhere. I I like how it kind of uh, in lower thirds she goes like, yeah, you know, I did this jitterbug. I used to do this jitterbug contest, and you know, I just kind of came out here and figured I'd go for acting. It's like, oh, that's what that meant. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, because you, you never know what that means until you get to the end. It's like, oh, that's what all that dancing was about. Yeah, I didn't even catch that until I was reading some of the theories. And that was one of the things that was pointed out about how she could be in like a perpetual loop. You know, mm-hmm. it's because of that and everything like that. And it's like, OK, it, some theories really good. Some are grasping at straws. But at the same time with this movie, even the ones that are grasping at straws, they kind of even point out little things that's like, I didn't recognize that. I didn't think of that. I like how this film overall, like they, they call it like David Lynch's poisonous Valentine to like, like, like to Hollywood, like. You look at Hollywood as like this dream factory, like mm-hmm. um, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be a screenwriter. I'm going to be an actress, a director, a producer. When it's like, dude, the hustle out there is hard. Right. Like, yeah, it, it is hard. Now, you can make it. It depends on the people, you know, of course. But like you, you it, it's a hustle. Like it's mm-hmm. a hustle. And, you know, you got these you got a lot of Bettys that come out there and the, the city turns them into Diane's. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I love that theme to it. Like, you know, it, it it deconstructs the dream factory of the city of angels. That's really the city of demons, if you really think about it. 
Um, and Mulholland Drive is like a road. Like, I love an interview that Naomi Watts gave where it was kind of like an anniversary. Uh, Criterion released this on Blu-ray. And there was yeah. an interview. Yeah, there was an interview with her and David Lynch. And she was like, man, like, there were times where I was a struggling actress and I just kept I kept riding down Mulholland Drive from auditions to my apartment and just depressed. Like, am I even supposed to be here? Am I destined to be an actress? You know, she's she. I think she's Australian, isn't she? Originally, uh, um, I don't remember exactly. I think she is. No, oh, she's. Oh yeah, yeah. Her family moved to Australia, but she is British. But anyway, mm-hmm. she came to um a Hollywood to act. She came to America to act, and she said she would ride up and down Mahalan Drive, just being so like depressed. Like, man, am I, am I supposed to make it here as an actress? And I like how. It was kind of destiny for her to get this this role in this movie, mm. which speaks to the the role of Betty and Diane, which Diane loses her role to Camila, the Sylvia North story. And that kind of sets her up from doom. She's destined to be doomed from the beginning. And I was like, man, I just love how everything fits into this movie, even like the behind the scenes uh, stories of it. Right. It, yeah, this is. One of those, I still had to go through and see some of those like beyond features and stuff like that that this movie has. But yeah, there's there's so much, you know, community and critic kind of uh, backing for this movie that you could probably read about this movie for days. Oh yeah, it, it's definitely a great complex film, dude. This is what I wanted Southland Tales to be. Yes, uh, except Southland Tales was just weird. <laughs> Southland Tales was just weird to be weird, but I'm like, this is the kind of film I wanted to see out of Richard Kelly. Yeah. Like this is this is what I feel like if Southland Tales not was more focused, but was more streamlined and just a tad more accessible, could have been this. I think Southland Tales got picked up by a streaming service for a TV show too. What was this recently? Um, I want to say somewhat. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, did this did this news just drop? Um, I, I remember it showing up. Uh, I ain't, I ain't seeing it. I want to say it was like just toward the end of like last year. Hmm. Okay. Well, I I feel like like if Southland Tales was a movie like this, like it would have been like way more better received than it was Mm -hmm. when it dropped. Um, But yeah, man, I feel like this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I feel like this is probably my favorite David Lynch movie. Might be his best. I know a lot of people put Blue Velvet as that, but might be his best. I give this a straight five out of five. Oh, yeah. This one's an easy five out of five. This movie, it's it's got some great humor to it. It's got great mystery to it. I love how it kind of plays around with different themes. And the fact that it has so many ways to interpret it just kind of makes it one of those easy rewatchable movies that every time you watch it, you could decide that it means something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So there it is, man. It looks like uh, Mahalan Drives wins out. I was a little oh easy. <laughs> it it is easy, but I I was a little worried that this movie would kind of turn you off to the point where you're like, 
you know, Anthony, this was great, but I didn't know what I watched. So I'm going to just stick with Live and Die. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Live and Die was a great action movie. It was. It Uh, was. Mulholland Drive was the exact opposite, where it was just a strange movie where things are nonsensically happening, but they're nonsensically happening in a pattern. So it's not like it's random occurrences. It's nonsense that continually, you know, starts to make more sense as you go along while adding more nonsense on top of it. It's controlled chaos. Yes. Yeah, definitely so. But yeah. Yeah. I I just felt like these are two great films set in L.A. that kind of break the facade of like, you know, the 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 cities of not the city of nothing but palm trees and and mm-hmm. and flashing lights the the city of opportunity right this is the city of counterfeit money uh failed actresses <laughs> uh depression uh burning men and uh you know an fbi the, just not doing a very good job at their job <laughs> right and, and and studio executives that need the best of the line top of the line espresso Right, yes. That's what LA is. <laughs> and painted jewelry. Painted jewelry. Dude, I'm about to um they're re-releasing uh David Lynch's film Lost Highway in theaters. I'm gonna try to check that out Thursday night at this independent theater near me. Yeah, it's like it's called the independent picture house. So that's where they're showing it. I don't know. I'm excited. I haven't seen that movie in a while, and I'm interested to see what it looks like on the big screen. Yeah, um, I I don't think I've seen any of his pictures on the big screen. Me neither. Um, I think I almost saw Mahalan Drive at midnight, but I could not make it. It was back when Royal Oak Theater was still open. Oh Maybe. yeah, they. I want to say they've done a couple showings of different like David Lynch kind of movies and stuff. I know they love to do a Racerhead. That's like his most oh, popular yeah. mid- midnight film to do. But um, I know they were showing this, and I just could not make it. But uh, yeah, man. Yeah, I, he's. I can tell he's a trip to experience on the big screen, man. Oh yeah, I believe it. You know, I, I if I, there's a chance for me to see it because I know the Royal Oak Theater's gone now. You know, rest in peace. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely take a chance to see one of his movies on the big screen. All right, man. All right, I think that cuts it. I'm I'm all set. What about you? Um, I got nothing else to add. All right, y'all, it's been another great episode of DFV. Catch us on the next one. Like, share, and subscribe if you would please. Uh, Take it easy.